a Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Rosie Waterland. This is Mum Says My Memoir is a Lie. You will lose your virginity, followed by your mind. <laughs> okay, here we go. I peed funny. Oh, God. <laughs> this is so awkward. Okay. Okay. That was the first thing I said after I losing. Go home, I think. No, you've got to do this. <laughs> I peed funny. That was the first thing I said after losing my virginity. Once penetration. Oh, I don't like saying penetration in front of you. <laughs> no, we've got to get through this. Once penetration. Yeah, people can't see my face. Let me do this, Mum. The quicker we get through it, the quicker it's done. Once penetration had finally occurred, after weeks of trying, by the way, I got up, went to the bathroom and looked on in fascination as my pee splayed out of me like someone was holding their finger over the end of a hose. I was mildly concerned I had broken my vagina. After finally figuring out where my tampon hole was, following years of sweating with one leg hoisted on the toilet, had I now stretched things so much that sanitary items would just fall out of me anyway? It should probably be noted here that anybody who thinks tampons can fall out of a vagina because of too much penis stretching probably shouldn't be having sex to begin with, but such is life. The lucky boy was Josh. He was a day student from the college whom I had started dating during my final few weeks there. After having my confidence and dignity obliterated by the kids in the boarding house, I was pretty much left with a couple of friends in the day school and Josh. I knew we were going to be together from our first drunken kiss at a party. It was one of those kisses that was just so perfect your knees go to mush. At least that's the way I felt after having only kissed maybe three other boys, all of whom had assaulted my mouth with their tongues and left me traumatised, confused and feeling betrayed by every Disney kiss I'd ever seen. Actually... A few years later, once I had hit both my 20s and my threshold for putting up with terrible makeout session, I taught a clueless guy how to kiss. It is probably one of the more selfless and heroic things I have ever done and ever will do for humanity. I mean, when you're kids, it's understandable, you're still figuring your shit out. But a grown man not knowing how to kiss a woman without making her want to regurgitate into his mouth, something had to be done. I met this random guy at a club. This was during the very brief period when I tried doing things other than drink wine at home in my underpants. And it was one of those situations where it was obvious from the second we started talking to each other that we were going to make out. We exchanged a few obligatory drunken pleasantries, but as is the way with random hookups that take place on a seedy club bench at 2am, subtlety was not really on the cards. One second we were talking, the next we were lunging at each other's faces. Now, I fully understand that kissing is a subjective thing. Not everybody likes the same technique, and it generally takes a few minutes of awkward adjusting before you fall into an acceptable rhythm with someone. But that was not what happened here. Nothing could have prepared me for the horror that took place in my mouth. It was like a fat slug had rolled around in mucus and was now trying to mate with my tongue. And the poor little guy couldn't decide where he wanted to go. First, he was trying to lick the back of my throat. Then he was trying to coat the entire circumference of my lips with saliva. Then he would somehow lodge himself between my teeth and the side of my cheek. I had no idea that a tongue could be soft like an oyster and hard like a tampon at the same time. Just as I was trying to deal with my front teeth being attacked in some kind of frenzied stabbing motion, he would change the game on me completely and start trying to fill my mouth with a seemingly never-ending supply of fluid that was secreted from his sex-crazed mucus slug. I was so thrown by what was happening, I think my brain actually shut down. 
It wasn't until he took his entire tongue, inserted it as far into my mouth as it would go and just left it sitting there, perfectly still, that I had a second to think. This guy needed help, and if I didn't offer it to him, he might subject some poor other girl to his oyster tampon. I couldn't let that happen. I needed to provide an important public service, and even though I wanted to turn and run with every fibre of my being, I decided to stay. For women everywhere. I was a fucking hero. I dislodged his mouth from mine and stretched my tongue out a few times. Um, what's wrong? He asked. Yeah, we need to talk, I said. That was really, really bad. Keep in mind, I was pretty inebriated slash traumatised at this point, so I wasn't exactly swimming intact. He seemed genuinely shocked. What? Yeah, look, you seem really nice and I can tell you're really trying, but I just can't let you walk away from this situation thinking that that was in any way enjoyable for me. What? Have you ever had a girlfriend beyond a few dates? No. And can you think of a time where a girl has been willing to kiss you for more than a few minutes straight? It was starting to dawn on him. Um, no. It's okay, I said, feeling more and more like a saviour slash Oprah as time went on. I put a hand on his shoulder and looked into his eyes like the hero that I was. I can help you. I then spent about 45 minutes with this guy taking things right back to basics. Literally basics. I actually had to explain that noses are not a part of the face that need to be taken entirely into the mouth. We also covered the basic functionality of the tongue and explored the idea that just because you think yours can reach the back of someone else's throat doesn't mean you have to prove it. It was an informative and thorough lesson, and by the end of it, he had the basic skills needed to kiss me without making me want to vomit in his mouth. Success. We practiced a few more times, and when I was confident that he was ready to be unleashed on the female population, I let him go. He no doubt remembers me as some kind of wise, selfless demigod, and rightly so. But back when I was still 17, Josh was the first boy I'd ever received a perfect Disney kiss from. Sure, we were both drunk and sitting in the dirt under the deck at some random kid's house party, but our mouths just connected seamlessly. It was the first time I had ever felt that, oh my God, nobody on earth could possibly understand that we are just two pieces of a perfect puzzle. Nobody but us has ever felt love this strong kind of feeling. And after that kiss, we were pretty much inseparable. We spent the next few weeks rubbing up against each other pretty aggressively. Soon the top came off, then the bra, and when we moved on to make-out sessions in just our knickers, I knew it was time. There was nowhere else to go but in. And don't get me wrong, I really wanted to do it, but I was a little scared. Considering I still thought I only had one hole for wee and one hole for poop, I wasn't exactly well acquainted with whatever my situation was down there, let alone his weird-looking bits. It wasn't particularly magical when we gave it the go-ahead. It was the middle of the day and we'd somehow transitioned from watching Judge Judy into some heavy, almost naked petting. Want to do it? I said, always the classy romantic. He acted sufficiently concerned about whether or not I was ready, although I'm certain that inwardly he was crying tears of joy for the balls that over the past few weeks had begun to turn blue in frustration. So, having begun the beautiful journey of giving up my flower by asking if we should do it, it was time to talk protection. I was on the pill already for my skin, but as sexual interns, we felt we needed more. I remembered seeing condoms in the upstairs bathroom, so we decided on that plan of action. That's where things took a turn. I think we both assumed that condoms were a one-size-fits-all situation. Did I mention we were 17? Anyway, after taking 10 minutes to pry one out of its plastic packet fortress, he went to put it on and... Well, let's just say whoever had hidden those condoms in the upstairs bathroom was not as well endowed as the young man currently in my bed. 
Josh had tried to put a tiny penis condom on his massive penis and it got stuck halfway down. It wasn't going any further and it wasn't coming back up. That thing was on tight, like rubber band tight, but we both assumed it was meant to be tight and if we just kept forcing it, it was a bad move. The first love of my life now officially had a latex ring of torture stuck on his dick. Panic took hold of the room. I suggested scissors. He suggested scissors would go nowhere near his penis. I felt helpless, watching him hop around the room naked with tears streaming down his face. My next mistake, deciding it was time to mention that my dad had once told me that cutting off blood flow like this was how farmers get lambs' tails to fall off. He held himself onto the bed. I approached, not realising my naked body was only making the problem worse. You mean they can't control when it moves? Put your freaking top back on, he yelled. Just stay fucking calm, I yelled back, struggling with my jumper. We sat in silence for about 30 seconds, both staring down at his possibly about to fall off dick. Eventually, mercifully, as his boner went down, the killer condom loosened. As soon as it seemed safe, I reached down and yanked it off. It was the most intimate I had ever been with a penis. Clearly, we had experienced a false start, but that wasn't going to stop us from trying again. Not that day, obviously, the remainder of which I spent stroking his head while he lay in the fetal position. It actually took a few more tries. I think the initial scare had caused me to close up shop, and when it finally did happen, it was kind of by accident. We were in the midst of another makeout session when it just slipped in. It hurt, definitely, but I think eventually it gets to a point where the desire to make contact outweighs the fear of having a massive foreign entity jammed inside you, so you just do it. I can't even remember the rest. The first thing I do remember is going to the toilet and laughing hysterically because my wee came out like a floodgate had been opened. And not yet understanding that a woman needs some mystique about her, I came running back into the bedroom screaming, I peed funny, I peed funny. A true class act. After that... Josh and I were basically at it like rabbits on ecstasy. We tried everything and we tried it every which way. In the few months before university started, we pretty much just went to each other's houses and had sex. Sex, cuddles, movie, eat, sleep, repeat. It was heaven. He told me he loved me and for the first time in my life, I started to have the disastrous thought that a boyfriend could fill the void that my lack of proper family had left. Josh became my everything. He had a perfect family and lived in a perfect house with a four-wheel drive and a dog. His mum made spaghetti bolognese and I played handball on the street with his brothers. Well, this is it, I thought. This is all I need. As long as I'm around Josh, I'll be fine. It was the first time I realised that I could use boyfriends like a drug. Why deal with that pesky depression slowly taking over your brain when it disappears every time you snuggle into your boyfriend's shoulder? Why bother learning to feel strong for yourself when he can be strong for you? It was a dangerous attitude to have at 17, especially since my mental health was about to turn to fucking jelly. After a childhood of abandonment and three years at a school where my soul was ripped apart, I was dangerously close to a nervous breakdown. And instead of learning how to climb out of that hole myself, I expected Josh to pull me out of it. At a time when I should have been learning to save myself, I appointed Josh my saviour. A really fucking unfair thing to do to a 17-year-old kid whose penis had recently been trapped in a tiny condom. But he did it, no questions asked, and after a few months of dating, the nervous breakdown hit. I'd been at university for about a month, studying psychology, living in a tiny room by myself on campus, and everything was catching up with me. My dad, my mum, the violence, the moving, the abuse, the neglect, the death. 
the fact that I had left Taylor alone, what I had gone through at boarding school. My brain began to completely malfunction and I was terrified. I had no idea what was happening to me. Instead of going to class, I would sit in my room alone all day and think about ways to kill myself. There were so many memories I couldn't get out of my head. I'd be taking a shower and all of a sudden I'd remember the blood from the night of the Olympics opening ceremony. I'd be watching TV and my brain would be taken over with the sounds of my grandpa screaming as my dad beat him. I'd go to spread Vegemite on my toast and see the flash of the knife my mum plunged through Rhiannon's in my bedroom door. I'd walk outside and hear people laughing and become convinced that Wayne had tracked me down. If I wasn't spending the day at Josh's house, I would lie in bed in my tiny campus room, staring at the ceiling, trying to get my brain to stop thinking horrific thoughts. That's the trouble with making a person your drug of choice. You can't control when you get a dose. Believe me, I tried. I started to become more and more demanding of his time. He began missing a lot of class just so he could be with me. I would call him in hysterics, not being able to explain what was wrong, except that I couldn't turn my brain off. I just wanted to turn my brain off. And Josh would come as often as he could. He would take me to his house where I would have dinner with his parents and seem normal and happy because I was all dosed up for the day. Then he'd drop me back at campus, the drug would wear off, and I'd be calling him within hours, begging him to come back and to make the thoughts stop. But of course, he couldn't always be there, and that made me irrationally furious. I had spent a lifetime being abandoned, and now here was this boy, the boy I had chosen, the boy who said he loved me and he couldn't be there for me every time I asked. Whenever he told me that he was sorry but he had class or he had to spend time with his friends or family, I got the same feeling I used to get when my mum didn't come home. I had appointed Josh my saviour, my family, my drug, and even though it was spectacularly unfair, not to mention unhealthy for both of us, I expected him to be there for me and felt let down every time he wasn't. He had the entire weight of repairing the damage of my childhood resting on his shoulders, and that is too damn much for a teenager to deal with. He was the only one who could make the thoughts stop. He was the only one who could make me feel happy, however fleetingly. So it's not surprising that it was when Josh was busy one day that I decided to kill myself. It wasn't specifically because I couldn't see him, but because he was my heroine and when he wasn't around, pain took over my body. When he wasn't around, all that existed were memories and darkness. I wasn't exactly sure how one kills oneself. I remember Googling suicide and being really annoyed when it just came back with a bunch of websites telling me not to go through with it. I knew I didn't want it to hurt because I'm a massive wuss and the idea of pain scared me. All I knew was that I wanted it to stop. All the memories, all the thoughts, all the pain. I wanted to go to sleep and never wake up. Eventually, after sifting through pages of search results with helplines and stories of redemption, I read somewhere that if you take a bunch of headache pills, you'll just fall asleep and die. Perfect, I thought. That's what I'll do. That saved me from having to do something messy or painful, and it seemed easy. I couldn't help but laugh that not only was I taking the easy way out, I wanted it to be the easiest easy way out. I walked to the local supermarket and bought the biggest box of paracetamol they had. I think there were 48 in there. I was about to head to the checkout when, for some reason, I decided that if I was buying the paracetamol, the staff would assume that I was up to something sus. I don't know what I expected, maybe a SWAT team of mental health professionals to suddenly surround me at the counter telling me to step away from the headache tablets. I guess when you know you're doing something major, your brain assumes that everybody else can tell, not unlike when you're trying to illegally download music at work. So, to throw the staff off the scent, I also bought a dustpan and brush and some mascara. 
I have believed every promise ever made to me by every new mascara ever released, and this one promised thickness and length, so I could hardly refuse. The dustpan and brush was just because it was something I'd been meaning to buy for a while. It was on sale, and I could hardly pass up a bargain, impending suicide or not. Items successfully purchased without suspicion, I went back to my room, put on the new mascara, which was exactly the same as every other mascara I'd ever tried, and poured myself a big glass of water. I popped every single tablet out of the blister pack and put them in a pile on my bed. Taking them one by one seemed a little overdramatic, so I just picked them up in handfuls and swallowed them. After five handfuls, I was done. I had killed myself. I sat on the bed for a while, surprised at how easy it was. Now all I had to do was lie down and go to sleep. So that's what I did. Motherfucker. That's the first thought that entered my mind when I woke up. Motherfucking fuck tits. I was tired and my head hurt, which seems unfair given I had taken 48 headache tablets, but I could definitely feel my body and it was definitely alive. I had failed at killing myself. I was the new coke of suicide attempts. Assuming I hadn't taken enough, I planned to get up and go and buy two boxes this time and perhaps another mascara. Then I looked at my phone and realised I'd been asleep for something like 20 hours. I had a bunch of missed calls from Josh. A warm rush came over me. Oh, that's right, I thought. Josh. If he could be my drug that day, I could put the suicide thing off for 24 hours. As long as I didn't have to think the thoughts and remember the memories for a while, I'd be okay. I told Josh what I had done. He freaked out, but he didn't leave. He made me admit to my uncle that I wasn't handling university and needed to leave. My uncle sent me to a psychiatrist who explained that I had post-traumatic stress disorder and was suffering the fairly common effects of a traumatic childhood like mine. I was put on medication and started going to weekly therapy. But still, I was only at the very beginning of a long journey to repair the damage my life so far had caused my brain. Going to therapy and taking a pill every day doesn't automatically fix things. In fact, for me, things were going to get a lot fucking worse before they got better, especially after Josh and I finally broke up. We stayed together for almost three years after high school, and despite my getting treatment, he was still the strongest and most effective drug I had. Being with Josh meant I didn't have to really try and deal with my problems because the second I walked out of a therapy session, I could just walk straight into his arms and ignore every difficult thing I'd just talked about. We were in a bubble, and if I was ever going to get better, I needed it to burst. The breakup began as most first love breakups tend to do. We were young, it was the first serious relationship for both of us, and we were just growing apart. I was really only staying with him because of how he made me feel. He'd become my only family, and I worried about how I'd handle life without him. He was really only staying with me out of a sense of duty. He knew he had become my only family, and he was worried how I'd handle life without him. We certainly still loved each other, but the love had changed. We would literally shit in front of each other in the bathroom. It was like we had taken one step too far towards family and one step too far away from romance. We started to fight a lot about little things, ridiculous things. We were constantly bickering. So it didn't surprise me that after everything we'd been through together, the whole thing would implode over something so stupid. In the end, our relationship ended because of a bike. A bike was what finally pushed both of us over the edge. Allow me to explain. Josh still lived with his parents, which, given my desperation for a family, I loved. But he also couldn't drive, and his parents lived about seven fucking kilometres from the train station, so getting to Josh's house took a lot of effort. When we first got together, and there was all the romance and sparkly heart feelings, he would do the round trip. He'd walk the seven kilometres to come and meet me, and then walk seven kilometres with me home. Also, I wouldn't have to walk to his place on my own. That's true love. Then we started using the bike. 
We figured out that if we put foot pegs on the back of his little brother's bike, he could ride out to meet me in half the time and then I could just stand on the foot pegs and hang on for dear life the whole way home. Two 20-year-olds cramming onto a 12-year-old boy's bike because neither of us could drive. I forgot to mention that we were really fucking awesome. One night, after a particularly crappy day working in my particularly crappy retail job, I begged him to come and meet me with the bike. I wanted to see him, but I didn't want to see him enough to walk seven kilometres after being on my feet for nine hours. He promised that if I came over, he would meet me, bike at the ready. I got to the station. He wasn't there. I waited and waited and waited. Half an hour passed. Half an hour that I spent thinking about every single annoying thing he had ever done. Half an hour that I spent fuming over the time he didn't come to that dinner, the time he was late to that thing, the time he didn't listen when I talked about that girl, the time he planned a night out when we were meant to see my friends. Then I started thinking about bigger things, how he was so unmotivated, how he still lived with his parents, how he didn't know what he wanted to do in life and where the fuck is he and why can't he fucking drive? It was right at the point my brain started thinking in capital letters that he arrived. He didn't stand a chance. Don't even talk to me, I said. Let's just go. It was when I went to get on the back of the bike that everything came crashing down. Where are the foot pegs? I asked with a level of calm that shocked even me. Oh, shit, he replied. The fear in his voice was obvious. We spent the next two hours on the side of the road arguing about our relationship under the guise of the bike. How could he forget the foot pegs? Why was I overreacting about the foot pegs? Why was he late? Why hadn't I been clear about the time? Why did he always make me feel bad about being busy? Why did I always expect him to read my mind? How could he be so disorganised? Stop trying to change the subject. This is about the bike. Obviously, it wasn't about the bike. We broke up three days later. After years of being focused on playing our designated roles, him the saviour and me the saved, we hadn't noticed that we actually didn't have a lot in common. We actually really gave each other the shits on an epic scale, but the task of making sure I was okay meant we never really thought about it. We agreed to go our separate ways, and at first it was mutual. We were sitting by the water at Darling Harbour, and we both hugged and cried and said our goodbyes. But two days later, I cracked. I wanted him back. I began to panic. I would listen to Missy Higgins for hours while snot crying into a wine glass. I invented a fake MySpace profile so I could spy on him and see if he was out with any girls. I called him relentlessly. But luckily, Josh stood firm. I think he knew better than I did that I only wanted him back because I was too scared to be alone. And despite begging him to take me back in an increasingly humiliating myriad of ways, he wouldn't. He had finally realised that I wasn't his responsibility, and he walked away. It was the greatest gift he ever could have given me. I needed to learn how to function emotionally on my own. I needed to realise that I had the strength to survive without a man to hide behind. It was going to take me a long time to learn. There would be another attempt at making a boy my drug and a stay in a mental institution before I really hit rock bottom. But Josh was the first one to push me into the deep end of the pool. And because I wasn't quite ready, I reached out to the only flotation device I could think of besides him. Actual drugs, the non-boyfriend kind, and lots of faceless, humiliating sex. I was at the beginning of my adult self-destruction. There wasn't that much sex in that. No, not really. (laughs) More more about mental health, really. Um, I loved him. He was lovely. He was gorgeous. Yeah. He was. Yeah. And you loved going over to his place with his family. I honestly feel like I loved his family, like, more than him. (laughs) I just, like, I felt like I was in the Brady Bunch. I loved it there so much. 
Yeah, he was lovely. And it was, sc- was a, I cannot yeah, imagine he's a lovely kid. how really scary lovely. it would have been for him. Like, I just went to uni and cracked it. And I didn't understand, like, I was petrified. I didn't understand what was wrong with my head. Yeah. I didn't understand why I couldn't stop thinking about suicide and I couldn't stop vividly remembering all these things, like, from my childhood and... It was scary for me, but I can't imagine how scary it would have been for him, like thinking, oh, I was dating Rosie and she was cool and now she's like flipped out. (laughs) And like, and he was really lovely. Like when I started seeing the psychiatrist and he was like, you have post-traumatic stress disorder and and that's why, you know, you're getting suicidal thoughts and that's why you're having these memories and that's why you're being triggered by certain things and was so great about it. Like he researched it and he made sure I took my medication every day. And he like, I started getting panic attacks and he helped me a lot with panic attacks. And he was so great though, that I think, like I say, I started relying on him too much. Mm. It wasn't healthy. And no, um, one, no wonder he went into social work. Yeah, he's social well, worker think, now. Yeah, he, and he works. He was that, that kind of person. He works it? with kids, disadvantaged kids. Mm which is really lovely. He had so much empathy for people. He was very sweet. And TBH, I do think he had, like, now that I've seen a lot of them, a very big penis. <laughs> like, <laughs> no. I didn't say. know. I didn't know because it was the first one I had ever seen. Yeah. And looking back, I cannot believe I lost my virginity to that monster because it was big. <laughs> And like, and <laughs> since then, I've been like, oh, they're mostly <laughs> a lot smaller than that. So it's kind of lucky I didn't know any different at the time. <laughs> when that condom got stuck on his penis, oh my god, that was. <laughs> I mean, it's funny now, but at the time, it was really scary. <laughs> yeah, how you were going to get it off like a rubber band? Oh my, it was stuck, and then I kept thinking about how lamb's tails fall off, and it was just bloody nightmare oh god but that was we lost our virginity to each other at the very start of stuvac which is the month that high school lets you take off to study for the hsc so that we just didn't really study much for the hsc because <laughs> we literally figured out how to have sex on the first day of stuvac mm. and then wasted a lot of time doing that i actually ended up going back to the boarding house even though i really didn't want to i ended up going back to the boarding house for the last week of stuvac because i was like we need to stop having sex and start studying (laughs) so (laughs) luckily (laughs) um yeah I remember it was really awkward when um the first time because people would come over during the day and I would go to his house during the day and then the first time I wanted him to stay over, I didn't know how to ask Uncle Like we never had personal conversations like that. Mm. And so came over and Uncle set up a, like a fold-out bed in the study and I was like, oh, okay, so I guess that means Uncle wants to sleep in the study and then it got to like 10 o'clock that night and we were just like okay well we're going to bed now and uncle like okay and then we just both went into my room and shut the door (laughs) and he just didn't use the study and then uncle just never said anything and I never said anything and then 
He just always slept in my room from then. But at his house, we weren't allowed to sleep in the same room. He had to sleep in the living room mm. and I had to sleep in his bed. Yeah. Oh, man, that was um, that was scary when I first started getting mentally unwell. Yeah. I didn't know what was happening to me because I'd never really – I'd been depressed because of the bullying and I'd started having panic attacks, but this was worse than that. Like, it was so bad at Sydney Uni. It was like I had a total nervous breakdown, I think, really. I just lost it. It was um, – Because I don't think you spoke to me about it at all. I just remember going to visit you in your little the room I had. Bedsit, yeah. It was very nice. And then next thing I know you're not there anymore. It is it was really scary. It's really scary to feel like you don't have control over your own brain and you don't understand why. Like I didn't want to kill myself, but I kept thinking that I did. Like I kept, I couldn't like, it was just really messed up. It was, yeah, it was really scary. And I was lucky to have at the time, but I can't imagine how hard it would have been for him. And I don't think he really talked to anyone about it. I don't think his parents knew. It was like all the all the stuff that had been happening to you just, like, it hit a crescendo. And it, it's just, you just crumbled. Yeah. Because you just couldn't um, cope with all that strain and stress anymore. It just built up. Yeah, and I felt like such a failure leaving uni. Oh, my God. I felt like such a disappointment to everyone. Yeah, I think I I was quite disappointed that you left. Yeah. I thought, oh, my daughter, she's going to be a a psychologist, all this kind of stuff. Oh, my God. Then all of a sudden, as soon as you'd started, you left. Left. (laughs) And I thought, oh, what a waste. That's what everyone thought. That's what everyone thought. No, actually, I wanted you to do law or something like that, and you chose psychology because you, your yeah. HSC marks were so high. I know Uncle was disappointed, but he actually was very supportive. Like That's good. He came, as soon as he saw how upset I was, he came and picked me up immediately, Did brought he? me home, yeah. found a psychiatrist. Like he, yeah, he was really great about that at the time. Yeah, it was hard, though. And then it happened, happened a few more times over the next few years. Mm. It was um, post-traumatic stress disorder sucks. It really messes with your head. But, and I mean, you know, I've been in therapy now since I was 17 and I'm 31. And, you know, I thought it was, I thought I was doing so well and it was mostly fine. And then after Tony died last year. I had another nervous breakdown. So it's like you think that you're better, but I don't think you're ever really fully recovered. Like it's something that you have to manage always, mental health, not like you can't really ever be done with it. Mm. That's for sure. Mm. You never know. And it does make you feel a bit shit, to be honest. Like it's just very frustrating not being in charge of your own brain sometimes. Yeah. I know, yeah, I know you've had periods where that's happened to you. Mm. But, I mean, most of the time you're in charge, aren't you? Yeah, I am, mostly. I think everyone is mostly, but sometimes it's just... It's like you with your cyclothymia. Yeah. Going for a bit of a dive. Well, yeah, sometimes, like, you just (laughs) suddenly seem super flat. 
and then other times you're super hyper and, you know, it's weird. It's frustrating. It's like the waves at the beach mm. going in and out. Mm. Just got to get used to it. Yeah. Because some things don't respond to medication, really. But that's why you got to do therapy as well. Like, when I saw Stephen, he didn't put me on medication for a while. Like, Well, you know, they shouldn't really, yeah. should they? He, I was it's probably seeing him for that, a few months before he did. It's good that um, he didn't. I think he's done a brilliant job. It's like it's not easy. It's not just like a one-size-fits-all solution to this stuff. And I think the most important thing is do, is doing it with therapy at the same time. You need to do it together. I tried that. I never. I wasn't interested in doing that. Therapy. It's good that it's worked for you. It's really fucking hard, Very Mum. Good. Therapy is hard. I, would, I couldn't do that. It it's just, exhausting. I went. I tried it once and, like... I accidentally was there late the third time I went there. Mm. And he made out I was deliberately late. And I'd had a car accident. I still managed to get there because mm. the car was drivable. But he thought I'd done it on purpose to avoid him. I thought, if this is what it's going to be like. And then I was sitting in his office looking over his shoulder mm. out the window. Mm. And he wanted to know, what are you looking at? And all this. And I'm thinking, I can't do this. This is, mm. this is crazy. I can't come and have this man talk to me like this yeah, every time maybe, I move. Why did you move? You know, I was sort of like, no thanks. Maybe he wasn't the right fit for you. Yeah, obviously not because I didn't go back there again. I think I mean, three times that was enough. I know Rhiannon went, told me she tried to go to therapy a couple of times and she just burst into tears at the start of the session and couldn't stop crying. Oh, and so dear. then she just didn't go anymore. Well, the, the, the only one that I really went to, I mean, I went to see him for about, for about Four years was my was um I went to see like Dr. Edwards mm. and he was he specialised in dual diagnosis. Yeah. So it was like drug addiction, alcoholism as well as mood disorders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was fantastic. It was so good seeing him. And then he moved. Oh. So from where he was, so um it was a bit hard catching up with him, but I still used to catch up with him. And then I went to Dubbo. You should try and see him and again. And then I really lost it within a, like six months. I was... Um, That's the sad I was thing. In, I was in hospital. That's the sad thing, though. Like, in this country, the mental health system's so bad. One of the things that I'm so grateful to Uncle for, even mm. more than him sending me to... was that he paid for me to go to a private psychiatrist, which is not cheap. And then when Uncle asked me to move out mm. and Stephen knew that I couldn't pay for it anymore, he just let me go for free. I so know. I've been going to see him for free for like 10 years. Yeah. Stephen has like helped me so much. Like you I might be dead if it wasn't for him. Well, I mean, I had, my, you know, by accident. Well, yeah. Dealing with my PTSD has been really difficult and it's not always been handled perfectly, but I know that if I hadn't been seeing him, it would have been so much worse. And I can't believe the amount of people who really need help who aren't getting it because it's just not accessible in this country. And I'm so lucky that I go for free. Like, I can't believe how lucky I am that I don't pay anything. Yeah, I mean, they might, I don't know. They might help you if you're on Centrelink or something. God, I, 
I'm not sure, but it's pretty bad, isn't it? It's just it the makes public me mad. the public system. It's only, it was only a minimal amount of hours that he actually worked for the public system because I think he had your his, doctor. Yeah, he had his own private practice as yeah. well, his own private practice. But he was a fantastic doctor. Yeah, really was. Well, if I had to pay Stephen, I I wouldn't have been able to go, and I don't know what would have happened. Yeah, because I mean, what is it like two hundred and fifty dollars an hour or something? I think I think well, you so. never at least. Hour. I mean, I don't know how much it is because I don't. You never get it out. It's like fifty minutes, I think. But I know it's around it's a few hundred dollars an hour, which yeah. I cannot. Who who can afford to pay that every week? Like it's not so. Yeah. And you do get like well, you know, a chunk of it other, back. Other specialists charge. You get a chunk of more. it back through Medicare, but not a lot. Yeah, so it's pretty. I didn't know that. Taylor has to pay to go. See yeah, Taylor her. pays. It's a shame she can't come to some sort of arrangement with the woman. And I guess Taylor, at least one of the positives to come out of my journey with PTSD and the struggles I've had with it and the times that I've kind of fallen and then had to get back up. And I mean, hopefully Taylor has seen that and learned from it. Do you know what I mean? Like, because like, Rhiannon didn't have really any major mental health problems and so I hadn't seen I felt no, like yeah. I was like why am I the Very only resilient. one that this has affected like I felt like there was something wrong with me like why am I the only one whose brain has been messed up by our childhood and I didn't get it and I feel like at least Taylor has me to look to you know that like you can have this problem and just live a normal a largely normal life with it which I do I mean I live a successful life with it yeah I mean I'm um, I saw Taylor yesterday morning. We went for a long, walk, a long walk together. Yeah. And I was talking to her about everything, and also about her childhood and how I thought she was probably the one worse off, the most badly yeah, affected than she was. all of us. The situation she was in, and Taylor's childhood and was she's horrific. Just, but she's just so understanding, and she's just such a sweet. Young woman. I know. You know, she said, look, Mum, I don't blame you for anything. And, you know, we've got you back now and we just want to make the most of the time we have with you left. She's such a sweet-hearted girl. She's just so gorgeous. Yeah, she is. And I said, we're going to have to meet up more often. I mean, just to, you know, for you to come over before you got to work and Mm. we can go for a walk like we did yesterday morning. But she's got so many of her own problems, but then she's encouraging me. Mm. She's saying, oh, Mum, listen to this podcast and all this, yeah, and yeah, this yeah. kind of thing. And I was telling her how I'm feeling, I've been feeling a little bit low. And she was giving me all this advice. And she's so thoughtful. I know she is. And she's, like, she's always trying to catch up with me. Mm. But we just, we just can't quite make the times. That's nice because... We don't do a lot together because we drive each other crazy, so I'm always just in my room watching TV. Oh, you and I? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think, well, you and, I think you and Taylor drove each other crazy as well. Oh, yeah, you? we did. No, I think we just, when you live with someone, it's a different dynamic. But it's your birthday today, and I promised I'd play cards with oh, you. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, but you know what? <laughs> You're not going to have any time. Why won't I? Play cards with me. Why not? I know you won't. I've finished watching Game of Thrones for the week. I've got time. I've got time for you now. (laughs) And I find it offensive anyway that you what? You promised to play cards with me for my birthday. (laughs) 
Jesus, Rosie. <sighs> yeah, I'm one day out of three. Um, when you see your birthday present tonight, oh yeah. When you see your birthday present tonight, you are gonna regret being so mean to me right now. Oh, that's what you always say. <laughs> it's a good present, Mum. And I wanted a cashmere scarf you, and a pair of slippers. You're not getting a cashmere <laughs> scarf and a pair of slippers. You're getting something better. All right. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to what it is. Rhiannon's going to cook a roast. I love, that. I love that photo that you gave me. Of us as babies oh, and then us as grown-ups. just priceless. Yeah. But, I, but it took me – I'm so stupid, it took me a couple of seconds to work it out. Yeah, you looked really unimpressed <laughs> when you opened that and then – And then I worked it out by looking at the before the, – the, yeah. That was awesome. The present. similarities. <laughs> I'm a good present giver, Mum. I think about it a lot. Uh, yeah, no, it was really good. Mm. Love you, that. All right. Yeah. Sweet. In the next episode. Okay, Mum. That was embarrassing. I didn't like reading that in front of you. <laughs> Do you like hearing that? No. <laughs> How does it make you feel uncomfortable? <coughs> oh my God, my daughter's such a slut. That's what how it makes you feel. I'm only joking. Thanks, Mum. <laughs> I was young. That wasn't it. Pimble golf course, was it? Mm-mm. Did you have any toilet paper? Mum says my memoir is a lie is recorded in the studios of Podcast One. Recording assistance by Felix Bray. Audio production by Nick Slater. Executive producer is Jamie Show. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.